just about every task that we come up with or that we need to do, we want to be sure we're doing it right. Especially if there's a manual, then we need to read the manual so that we know we're doing it correctly. So how does one do church? We've got a manual in front of us, Titus specifically. Join us, Graceful Truth is next. A how-to manual for the church. How to run the church, how to guard and keep the church. Who are its leaders? What are their qualifications? Well, that's what Paul addresses here in the book of Titus. And today, after a considerable look at the qualifications for an elder, we want to turn a page and take a look at what that elder is supposed to do. Precisely, guard and care for and nurture the flock, the body of Jesus Christ. What does that look like? We'll find out next on Graceful Truth. Join us. We've been working our way through this little epistle of Paul, and uh, we've been looking at different aspects of, of what God would have us to uh, come to understand concerning the, the leadership of the church, his church. And uh, I doubt probably that there has ever been a time in history where the enemy somehow has not um, attacked or been assaulting uh, the Word of God. It's happened throughout the ages. Um, During the Middle Ages, many, if not most, of the priests, even in the Catholic Church, were ignorant of the basic teachings of the Bible because the Bible wasn't translated into the common language of the day. Only the priests could read it in Latin. Remember those days, sitting in in the Catholic Church and the priest up there reciting things in Latin? I do. They were the only ones that could read the word. They're the only ones that could present it to the congregation, but unfortunately few of them did. Um, The Reformation was really, at its heart, a revival to the word of God. Uh, Luther translated the Bible into German, and so that, because of that, common people could read it and... uh, both he and Calvin preached what they are known as expository sermons from God's Word, explaining and applying the Bible to everyday lives, making the planning of the, the scripture, uh, the meaning of scripture plain. And even though the, the Reformation spread throughout England and by the mid 15th or 16th century, um, things were once again in a very bad way. Uh, J.I. Packard says many churches had not had a sermon preached in them for years. And in that spiritual wasteland, God raised up the Puritans. And the Puritans believed that they, their role as pastors and elders in the church, their role was to be responsible for rebuking heresy, for defending truth, lest their flocks be misled and enfeebled, or at worst, that biblical, uh, uh, if not worse, biblical truth would somehow help them, nourish them. And the the Puritans were, above all else, uh, a biblical movement. They were all about the Bible. To the Puritan, the Bible was truth. And it was the most precious possession the world affords. How many Bibles do we have on our shelves 
Probably most of us have two, three, maybe more. How many times do we crack it open every week? Hopefully not just on Sundays. Well, over the years, I believe that the Bible has been, the Word of God has been attacked by the enemy in several ways. But two are rather obvious. Back in the 1970s and in the early 80s, there was a a literal attack on the inerrancy of Scripture. Some of you remember that time. And there was um, a guy by the name of Harold Linzel who wrote, remember his book, The Battle for the Bible? And he began to expose the erosion of trust and the absolute accuracy of the Bible. And as a result of that, there was raised up an international council on biblical uh, inerrancy. And uh, they published a a statement on inerrancy during that time that clearly spelled out that they affirmed and the the truth of Scripture. And even more recently, in our, our recent times, there has been attacks against the Word of God. Even through the modern day seeker church movement. Uh, the seeker movement basically is, is based, you might say, on a worthy goal to reach the lost, to reach the unchurched, to bring them to faith in Christ. But the unfortunate thing is that at the heart of their strategy is re- redesigning the church, redesigning the, the Sunday morning worship service so that it primarily targets unbelievers. Hymns are replaced with upbeat contemporary songs often used drama or plays. Services are kept short, about an hour long. Believers are discouraged from bringing their Bibles to church because it might make the unbelievers feel comfortable, so everything's put up on PowerPoint. Sermons are are short and always basically topical, uh, self-need, self-help kind of stuff about how to succeed in life. One church growth writer stated that if you want your church to grow, you should never, ever preach on anything controversial or negative. And that seeker kind of movement was replaced more recently by the emergent movement, the emergent church. They look at the seeker movement as too big, too successful, too much authority, too too many programs. And so they go to the other extreme and they want to emphasize building close relationships in the church, which sounds noble, but they buy into the fall, the flawed philosophy of the postmodern era, which denies absolute truth in the moral and spiritual realm. They emphasize experience over doctrine. They emphasize tolerance and acceptance, and they look at those as virtues. And so, to them, to have a pastor or an elder stand up in a church and open up the Word of God and tell everyone what the meaning says and exhort the body to be obedient to the Scriptures is viewed as arrogant and judgmental. In that movement, doctrine is de-emphasized. When you go on the site of an emergent church, they have a doctrinal statement, but it's very general. Because it's, it's, to understand what the emergent church movement is, it's, it's basically a, a group of loose-knit association of churches that, and pastors that have decided that there is no value and there's no virtue in teaching the certainty of Scripture. The bottom line is the emergent church movement, what they believe, is they believe that we aren't even supposed to understand precisely what the Bible says. 
And it's an attack on the clarity of Scripture. It's an attack when they elevate themselves as if that was some kind of a noble thing that they're doing. One emergent leader is quoted as saying, we don't know what the Bible really means. We can't be certain. We are the true spiritual ones because we don't claim to know what it means. It has overtones of spiritual pride, a false kind of spiritual pride that they call humility. They say we're too humble to say that we know what the Bible means. And what is a movement like that doing? It's denying the clarity of Scripture. It denies that when we open up our Bibles, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that He can allow us to understand the meaning of the Scripture. And so they fall into the same trap. They just give people what they want. And usually, it's kind of a thing that culture defines. So they want to change with culture. They're all about what, what the culture's into, the latest trend, the latest fad. And they don't want to over stress theology in any way but rather they allow the community of faith to get together and discuss it and come up with whatever they want it to mean so instead of having a sermon you might have a group of people come together and someone shares a psalm someone shares a poem someone shares a song or maybe brings a picture or reads a scripture or maybe they dance or they show a video what they're saying in effect is they're not into doctrine We're not hung up on that kind of stuff. And they feel sorry for those that are. And they want us to understand that they're really experiencing Christ in that venue. And I'd venture to say that even the modern day charismatic movement is really an assault on the authority of Scripture, if you get honest about it. Because they put their experience at least on the same level, if not usually above the revealed Scripture as far as authority goes. They claim that they're getting fresh revelation, fresh truth from God, which is outside the bounds of revealed scripture that he's given us. And they do it all while claiming to be a movement of the Holy Spirit. The thing they fail to understand, unfortunately, is that the Holy Spirit does his work through the word of God, through the scriptures, as they're revealed to us in the canon of scripture. And he does that through a true and proper understanding, interpretation of those scriptures. The meaning of any scripture is the divine revelation from God. You don't need to go beyond that. If you don't get the meaning right, beloved, then you don't have any revelation. So how can you have a movement that claims to be from God without the proper understanding of scripture? It's impossible. And so while they claim to be this supernatural movement of the Spirit... They deny the true interpretation of scriptures. And they really get, in a way, sidetracked from the true ministry of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. I say all that to introduce our our text this morning. Titus, chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. You can follow along as I read down through 16. Speaking of elders, it says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain 
what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The question is, are you willing to stand up for biblically sound theology? The role of an elder, the role of a pastor is to guard God's flock from error. And to do that, we want to look just in our opening here, five things that elders are commanded to do. Elders must be godly men who firmly and boldly teach God's word of truth. And he gives us five requirements there in Titus. And the first one is elders must be men of biblical understanding. They must be men of biblical understanding. Every elder is called primarily to the ministry of the word. Therefore, they're gifted with a gift of teaching. 1 Timothy 3.2 says they must be able to teach. That's what sets them apart from deacons, servants in the church. 1 Timothy 5.17, it says the elders who rule well are considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now that doesn't mean that you have to get in front of people and stand behind a pulpit. You might very well feel more comfortable in a smaller group or discipling men. But the idea is that you have to have some form of biblical understanding. Every elder must be knowledgeable enough in Scripture that he could instruct a younger believer and correct any doctrinal error when he encounters it. We have to hold fast, it says, the faithful word, trustworthy word, so that we can understand it. To understand it, you have to study it. To study it, it takes time. It's really a lifelong endeavor. So a man who does not have a desire to study God's word diligently and a desire to further his knowledge of the word of God clearly should not be an elder. Secondly, elders must be men of biblical conviction. Not just understanding, but biblical conviction. It says there that we should hold fast. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. John Calvin, in his commentary, he brings out the meaning of this. He says, in a pastor, there is demanded not only learning, but such zeal for pure doctrine as never to depart from it. And those strong convictions, beloved, flow out of the first quality. You have to have an understanding of Scripture to have a conviction about Scripture. The problem is we have people all over the place that don't have a a proper understanding of Scripture And so they have convictions that are flawed. The more you study the great doctrines of the faith, the more you appreciate God's grace as he shows it to us through Christ. The more you study, the more you understand why these doctrines are essential, the doctrines of the faith. And you begin to see how the enemy subtly sneaks in and begins to introduce destructive heresies. All you have to do is look at church history. 
You can learn how all these errors have damaged people's lives and even their eternal destinies. You see men who have been willing to die a torturous death rather than deny these truths. All of this should strengthen our own convictions to hold firmly to the truth, even in the the face of strong pressure, pressure to compromise. We need to understand that we need to hold biblical convictions with two cautions. First of all, we need to be firm and unwavering on the essentials of the faith. We need to be firm and unwavering on the essentials of the faith. But we also need wisdom and discernment about where and when to contend for the faith. There are doctrines that, in my mind, are non-negotiable. It's not an exhaustive list here, but some of those doctrines are the, the Trinitarian nature of God, the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ, His substitutionary atonement on the cross, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The inspiration, the authority, the veracity of Scripture. The bodily resurrection of Jesus. His ascension into heaven. His bodily second coming to judge the earth. And the eternal reward of believers in heaven. And also the eternal punishment of unbelievers in hell. That's not exhaustive, but those are some of the things that I'm willing to die on the mountain for. And there's people out there teaching the direct opposite of that list. For example, the more current trend is open theism. They deny the sovereign omniscience of God. I mean, when you deny the omniscience of God, when you deny the sovereignty of God, that has huge implications on how you're going to understand any truth of Scripture. And it's going to have implications on how God is able to fulfill his promises. Another area that causes arguments, that causes divisions within the body of Christ, is the so-called Calvinism versus Arminianism argument. Now, I'm not here to say Arminians are heretics. I wouldn't say that. But I'll tell you what, their beliefs have major consequences with regard how they view God. And how you view man as a sinner. And how you understand and how we preach the gospel. Because I'll tell you what, the Arminian viewpoint on doctrine really erroneously robs God of the glory that's due his name. And I think whenever you're robbing God of his glory, that's a very serious matter. There's many historian, uh, church historians over the years and theologians that point out that when a church embraces Arminian theology, it often leads to the rise of liberal theology. Because both errors really exalt human reason above the revelation of God's word. Those things are worth contending for. Secondly, we need to contend for the truth, but we need to do it in love. We must not love controversy. We must not love the, 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 the feeling that our flesh gets of winning a debate. That's not what it's about. First and foremost, beloved, we must love God. And we must love His truth above all else. And we must love the people of God, including even those who are in error. And we need to do so fervently. We need to do so with humility. 
See, false teaching is crucial because false teaching damages people. False teaching is crucial and it's cruel because it damages people. Even the Apostle Paul labors to set churches straight. He tells Titus, you need to set things in order. There's some people that are out of line. He's like a parent to his churches almost. The Apostle Paul is. I mean, if you were a parent and you only corrected your child when they committed a felony, you wouldn't be a very good parent now, would you? (laughs) You wouldn't have very good kids either. Good parents long for their children to grow up, right? And they, they do so with kindness and, 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 and courtesy, and they, and they treat them and they love them. But their desire is that they grow up into mature adults. That's what Paul's goal was. That's what Paul's desire was for the church. And so elders must have biblical understanding. They also must have biblical conviction. Thirdly, elders must be men of biblical obedience. They must be men of biblical obedience. It would be sheer hypocrisy, while the Bible strongly condemns, to exhort people to follow God's word when you're not doing it yourself. Now that doesn't mean that every elder and every pastor follows God's word perfectly. They're not saints, okay? They're fallen human beings just like you and I. So we have to be careful as a church that we don't exalt men who are in ministry or elders to a, to a level that they don't deserve. But we also have to hold them to a standard which God tells us to. See, Paul exposes these false teachers in verse 16. We read it. It says, they profess to know God, but they're what? Their deeds, by their deeds, they deny him. Being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. So you have people within the church that are professing to know God, but their lives don't match up to what they're saying with their lips. John Calvin said this of pastors. He says, For it would be better if they broke their necks while mounting the pulpit than to be unwilling to be the first to walk after God and to live peaceably with their neighbors, demonstrating that they are the sheep of our own Lord Jesus Christ's flock. Now, none of us live in sinless perfection. That's impossible. But we see in verses 6 and 7, an elder must be above reproach. Shouldn't have a secret life. We shouldn't be living a double life. One, one way here on Sunday morning and then one way out when we leave these doors. Fourthly, elders should be men of biblical exhortation. They must be able, it says to what? Exhort, right? In sound doctrine. The word sound means healthy. That's what that means. It means healthy. We get the word hygienic from it. Sound doctrine aims at and results in spiritual health. It doesn't focus, as verse 14 says, on myths. It doesn't focus on the commands of men. That would be ridiculous. It doesn't get all caught up with speculation. Well, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? You know, who cares? I don't know. Beloved, we have to come to the conclusion that, you know what, there are some truths within the Word of God that I just can't make sense of. Logically, it doesn't make sense. Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. 
It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. Directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse.